0: Welcome to this week's Investor Podcast. This is Gavin Ralston and I'm delighted to have with me Alex Tedder, Head of Global International Equities. Welcome, Alex. So last week uh, on the podcast, Azad gave us his macro outlook and a fairly gloomy one too. Uh, This week, we're going to look at the earnings outlook for companies. We'll also get Alex's view on the revival in value stocks in September. And at a time when equity markets generally are looking fully valued, uh, look at where his team are finding companies with gross prospects that are not already discounted in their stock prices. This last week has been marked by fairly dismal economic news, most notably the ISM survey for the US, which came out on Tuesday. Bear in mind, this is a lead indicator, and it was unambiguously bad for both manufacturing and non-manufacturing. Not surprisingly, this triggered a sharp fall in equity markets and a fall in bond yields, which was then partly mitigated by the employment data on Friday. This showed that the US economy is expanding, but at a much slower pace than earlier in the year, and that wage inflation is easing. Markets like this data because it raises the probability that the Fed will cut rates at its October meeting. And it also looks like the weakness in manufacturing, which we've talked about in these podcasts, is not yet undermining consumption, at least in the US. So there are clear signs that US growth is weakening. And this comes on top of a situation where Chinese growth is well off its best and Germany is teetering on the brink of recession. Both of these uh, confirmed by their, their respective ISM data, which also came out last week. Uh, The other feature of note in the last few days was particular weakness in UK equities where the uncertainty over Brexit now apparently weighing heavily on retail sales as well as investment spending. All this pessimism on growth has brought bond yields back to where they were at the beginning of September, before the sell-off in the middle of the month. U.S. 10 years, round about 155, Germany minus 60. And as an indication of the level of pessimism that's now baked into bond markets, the 10-year inflation break-even in the U.S., in other words, the market's estimate of inflation over 10 years, has fallen below 1.5%. So, Alex, turning to you, um, we've talked uh, a lot about GDP growth slowing in the US. What's your view of earnings growth for the companies you follow in 2020?
1: Um, yeah, no, thank you, Gavin. Um, and, uh, you, you know, you, it'll come as no surprise to listeners that um, our view on earnings is somewhat cautious. Um We're not macro guys, we're very much driven by the bottom up, but the bottom up perspective is reflecting very much the macroeconomic picture that you've outlined. It's also reflecting the uncertainty that we're all familiar with uh, that only seems to be increasing at the moment. And the fact is that we are in the late stages of a bull market, and in the late stages of a bull market, typically you see volatility, you see quite often a flight to safety. And you see a fairly persistent picture of earnings downgrade. And that's where we are now. We're in a downgrade phase. It's interesting to see for 2019 that estimates have come down very materially over the last 12 months. And even for this quarter, the third quarter, which is about to kick off in reporting terms, we're now looking at negative consensus estimates for the S&P year on year. A few months ago, those were still definitely positive. For 2020... The issue I have is simply that estimates, certainly in the US, to my mind, are still too high. We're looking at a consensus year-on-year earnings number of double-digit earnings growth, 11-point-something percent year-on-year for the S&P, 2020 on 2019. That just looks way too optimistic unless we have some sort of catalyst for a turnaround. And frankly, uh, I just don't see that right now.
0: And going back, back more narrow to the third quarter where the earnings season's about to kick off mm. in the next few days. Yeah, You made the point that earnings expectations are negative year on year. Mm. That's a significant deterioration from where in, in markets were at the beginning of January. But the fact that markets are so much higher now than they were in January is down to the impact of liquidity and easier monetary policy rather than anything happening at the corporate level.
1: Yes, exactly. It's all come from re-rating, mm-hmm. Gavin. Um, it hasn't come from earnings, as, as you've outlined, uh, and that re-rating has really been driven by where we are in the interest rate cycle and the impact that monetary policy in particular is having on bond and equity markets. Uh, with yields where they are today, uh, the valuation on equities uh, looks actually quite reasonable uh, relative to history, of course, the valuation of equities, particularly in the United States is very high, but relative to bonds, it's not. And that that is the dilemma that investors are currently facing.
0: And companies are usually pretty good at managing expectations ahead of an earnings season. So Mm. it it sounds like you don't think there's a big risk that the, the actual release of earnings we're about to see will significantly disappoint those expectations.
1: I think there will be disappointments, Gavin, in certain areas. Certainly those areas exposed to global trade, are going to see, I think, further disappointment and further downgrades. On the flip side, I actually think anything that's domestically focused in the United States will continue to show pretty good numbers. So to your point, actually, it's quite reassuring that estimates have come down as much as they have, because uh, as things stand today, there's a pretty good chance with the momentum in the economy and the employment uh, data where it is, all-time low in terms of unemployment there's a pretty good chance that actually the earnings season will be okay overall, albeit very mixed, depending on the exposure of the company.
0: So anything exposed to domestic mm. strength in the US, which came out, came out in the employment numbers, looks a reasonably, or at least relatively safe place to be. It does, yeah. I made the point that, um, that there was quite a strong recovery in September in value stocks. Mm. It all happened in quite a short space of time. There hasn't been a reversal of that position, but I'm just wondering what your thinking is in in terms of whether this presages a change in market leadership or whether, Mm. is is this the beginning of the recovery in value that we've been talking about for some time? It's probably the biggest question for us down at the coalface right now is exactly that, is
1: we've been through a period of unprecedented outperformance by growth stocks and very, very significant underperformance by the value space in aggregate. And of course, the value space is dominated by companies in the financial sector, the energy sector, materials sector, and industrials. It's a group of, um, of companies and sectors that are highly correlated with the economy and with interest rates. And obviously, uh, the headwinds have been material for those sectors. Now, at some point, the underperformance of the value space will come to an end. But our view is not yet. You need to have a clear catalyst in terms of an upswing or the prospect of an upswing uh, to really sustain momentum in that area. Um, And we saw that briefly in September when investors were a little bit excited about the trend in bond yields and the fact the data wasn't that bad. But for now, it's our opinion That defensive quality will continue to do well. I I know that going back to what we were talking about before, I know that valuations are high. It's pointed out to me all the time how expensive some of the staples companies are, for example. But the fact is, they could go higher still in the short term. We're in that phase of the market where you'll pay for quality because the, the the visibility on any kind of turnaround in the economy is so low. So, bottom line,
0: not yet for
1: value. Of course, it will come just not
0: yet. So let's move on to those defensive quality stocks. I mean, which, which of the large growth names, and I'm thinking of the US in particular, mm. do you still like? And, and where are you concerned about their level of valuation?
1: Mm. There are whole sways of the US economy where, and we've touched on that already, where actually things are just fine. And, uh, That sort of goes across a a, a variety of different sectors. It goes across, obviously, the consumer sector to a great degree. There are big parts of the consumer space, uh, discretionary and staples, that we still like very much. And It's interesting to see Pepsi's results um, last week, very strong with good pricing in the U.S. and good volume development too. The fact is that these domestically focused companies with pricing power, as many of the larger companies do, in staples, in technology, uh, in consumer generally, in our view, will continue to do well and will show actually pretty good numbers this quarter. So that's, I think, pretty supportive. Uh, On the flip side, obviously, the areas where there is political pressure like healthcare, typically viewed as a defensive sector, it's actually been a very poor performer this year because of the political overlay uh, that is unlikely to do well. But anything directly linked to the domestic economy, I think we're going to see reasonable outcomes over the next couple of quarters.
0: And and the fang specifically, I think as a group, they've underperformed by about yeah. 10% this year. But do you still find value in names like Alphabet and Amazon?
1: Yeah, a really great question. It's interesting that the fangs, as a group, have outperformed have underperformed quite materially. Uh, the notable outperformers are uh, Apple, which uh, has caught many by surprise, given the uncertainties around iPhone and uh, China and the outlook there. But the fact is, the company has continued to execute and actually changed its strategy somewhat, moving more towards services, which investors are increasingly interested in. But it's been a very mixed, mixed picture. The flip side of that is that companies such as Netflix, for example, have been material underperformers, um, and rightly so given the concerns about content cost. It's been a pretty diverse group, and that will remain the case in our view. The outlet for Netflix remains uncertain. The outlet for companies like uh, Google and Amazon is actually still really good, but the regulatory overhang continues to weigh. Uh, Apple has its own dynamic Microsoft, which is not technically a fang but is in that group, also has its own dynamic and doesn't face the regulatory headwinds or regulatory potential headwinds that some of the other big technology names do. So it's a very mixed group, and I I think that that, uh, differentiation will continue, Gavin.
0: You've talked in the past about the extreme valuations being put on IPOs, Mm. especially IPOs of companies that are losing money. Yeah. We, we saw the WeWork IPO being pulled yeah. um, for, for specific reasons in its case, but could this be a game changer for the valuation of these high growth, but money losing businesses?
1: It, it could be. WeWork is <clears throat> a little bit of a special situation since WeWork was hoping to achieve a tech stop valuation. Um, and in fact, it's not a, technology stock. It's a a real estate stock. And that was quite obvious to to many of us, obviously not to WeWork's management, but to us it was apparent that at the end of the day, it is effectively a real estate company with a lot of leverage. Uh, And therefore, the fact that the IPO has not been successful actually for us is is quite a reassuring sign. Uh, That needs to be reset. Maybe more worrying are some of the other loss-making IPOs and the trend in terms of the valuation of the, those IPOs, it has been steadily deteriorating. So Uber and Lyft are high-profile examples. More recently, there have been some smaller examples of IPOs effectively failing. So Peloton, for example, which is the exercise company, has had a pretty dismal start as investors are wary of the sort of multiples that were applied by the investment bankers. I think it actually the fact that we're having this... Um, period of reflection around valuations uh, for uh, loss-making companies is actually very healthy. It means we're not going to have the type of bubble that we had in 99, and the parallels to 99, 2000 are wrong. This is not a similar situation.
0: Last question on the US, uh, the impeachment inquiry of the president, is that going to have any impact on the stock market? It will if he gets impeached, Gavin. Um But as I'd made the point last week, that the chances of getting a two thirds majority in the Senate are. Exactly.
1: Yeah. The the chances of that happening are very, very low. Um, I think much more important at this stage is uh, the Democratic process, nomination process. Looks like Elizabeth Warren will be the one. And Elizabeth Warren, I think, presents a serious challenge to Donald Trump. Her agenda is entirely different to Donald Trump's, obviously, it is very much to the left and the implications for big swathes of the US economy in healthcare and and technology in particular, the implications are very material and that is a risk to the US stock market in 2020. Mm.
0: So let's move on to Europe, where the macro news is, um, well, I used the word dismal earlier. It's particularly true, Mm. uh, particularly opposite of Europe. How are companies addressing the very poor growth outlook? It's really interesting
1: because I made, uh, I think, a pretty clear point that I'm quite cautious on the idea of a, a, a large, a wholesale turnaround in style over the foreseeable future. Well, the point I want to make is that outside the US, expectations are generally quite low. And that's particularly the case for unloved cyclical areas where actually Europe and Japan have a much higher exposure than does the US. So if you take European industrials to your question, uh, these companies obviously have had a very tough time. Trade wars have weighed massively on Uh, the European industrial space, much more so, actually, than in the U.S. And uh, valuations and earnings estimates uh, have come down significantly. We're at the point now where expectations are really very low. And what we're seeing in Europe and in Japan and in other parts of Asia is a, a move to restructure, reposition, cut back on CapEx, just rein in costs quite aggressively, German industrials are very much at the forefront of that. If you look at companies like GEA or Continental or BSF, they're all announcing very significant cost-cutting programs, uh, and that will have, in the medium term, a substantial effect on the potential operating leverage when things do start to improve. And so the point is this. The timing of recovery remains very difficult but it won't take much of an improvement in demand for these European and Japanese industrials to generate very significant earnings growth. And so for us as a team, for now, it's stick to our knitting obviously, remain quite defensive overall, but at the margin, actually, we are looking a lot more at some of these areas like European industrials where the potential for Delta is very substantial.
0: And your point is the companies are not sitting around waiting for the ECB or the German government to ride to the rescue. They're no. managing their own prospects.
1: They're not. I mean, the ECB is doing what it can. Uh, I would say they're pushing on a string, uh, but we'll see how that pans out. I mean, certainly the negative yield environment in Europe is quite extraordinary. Obviously, there are, uh, there's talk of Japanification in Europe. That may or may not be the case. But the better companies in Europe are responding to that restructuring. That presents some very substantial opportunities in my view.
0: And how about China, where you've held some of the big Chinese stocks? Mm. Well, China is a two-speed
1: market in many ways. Um, On the one hand, you obviously have a very big chunk of the market that um, my colleague Robin Parbrook... uh, simply will not go near. And rightly so, it's uh, it, 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 it's uh, dominated by legacy state-owned enterprises. But the other part of the market, the other half of the market, has a lot of very interesting growth situations. Technology is obviously a big part of that, and we have a lot of exposure to, to that. Uh, but increasingly, consumer, in the broader sense, uh, is an area that we are very interested in and looking at very closely. And I can see China, once we get through this slowing phase, presenting a raft of opportunities that will be very attractive. And as a general rule, I think, you know, if you think about the shape of our portfolios today, where we're still marginally overweight, the US, um, underweight the rest of the world effectively um, overall, um, I can see that changing over the next 12, 18 months. Less US more emerging markets, particularly China, and more continental
0: Europe. Okay, so I guess that the overall picture is that the world looks different uh, from the perspective of a stock picker than from someone who's just looking at the macro environment, that mm. there, are, there are opportunities which might not be obvious from just looking at relative growth rates. Definitely. So, Alex, thank you very much. Um, I mean, a couple of points I picked out from what you said, which I think are interesting. One is that uh, value, that earnings expectations are much more realistic in the U.S. than they were at the start of the year, and that that gives some support to the market. That inside the U.S., companies that are dependent on domestic growth are relatively well positioned, and that outside the US, companies are restructuring Mm. uh, and looking at their profitability in the light of a persistent low-growth environment. So again, uh, a distinction between a top-down and a more bottom-up view.
1: Very much so. Yeah.
0: Thanks very much again, Alex, and thank you all for listening.